Yeah, all right. What's happening, everyone? Welcome into another edition of the Sexy Ass Supercross podcast. Today, we're going to get into round six of the 2023 Supercross series. Round two for the 250 Supercross East. And uh, this week, we're going about as far east as you can get in this country. We're going out to Tampa. I believe 2020 was the last time they had a race out of Raymond James Stadium. And on that occasion, Eli Tomac took the crown in the 450s, going number one on the night. But before we get into all that, I think we really ought to start by talking about the track. It was not one of the most complicated tracks we've seen technically in, in, in terms of rhythm sections by any means. When you first look at this thing and, and you're taking the rhythm sections into account, uh, one thing that the Dirtworks crew has been really great about this year in building the tracks is uh, leaving some variety for riders to have options when they're going through these long extended rhythm sections that we've seen so much of as of late. And that's great because it allows riders that really have the uh, best technical skills and uh, that thrive on really sending these big jumps to uh, excel beyond their competition. And it really creates separation in the pack. Going into Raymond James Stadium and looking at the track layout, it didn't appear on first glance that we were going to get that. Everything was uh, painfully straightforward for the most part in terms of the jumps. But that didn't mean the track was set up to leave us with any deficit when it comes to excitement because there were other sections that proved to be ultimately challenging or at least appeared that they would be challenging throughout the night. And in some instances, uh, they were. They were exactly as horrible as expected. And, and in some instances, the obstacles that were anticipated to be the hardest were handled pretty well. Now, what are these obstacles I'm talking about? Uh, much ado was made of the whoops going into Tampa. Uh, 14 long, running down uh, nearly one entire sideline. And, and these things weren't tiny by any means. You could go stand in the trough between two of them and get lost, you know, if you're a, a short guy like me, uh, a man of uh, diminutive uh, yet still noble stature. Um, and these were anticipated to uh, really separate the wheat from the chaff in terms of the uh, contenders for round six here. Um, but what happened was they actually ended up making the whoops a little bit shorter because uh, they were anticipating inclement weather, which we got and, and which we'll get into in a second. But uh, initially, I think they were supposed to extend all the way to the corner. And uh, they cut down on that, making it a little bit easier. And I thought that most riders actually fared pretty well here through the end of the night. Of course, there's one notable exception in the 450 main event in Chase Sexton. And uh, we'll talk about the uh, late lap heartbreak he had there when we're discussing the 450s. Now, besides the whoops, the other section that so much ado was made of uh, going into this thing in Raymond James was the sand section. We had a sand section last week in Houston, and boy, did it cause problems for everybody, right? Again, Chase Sexton, this was where he consistently lost time to Eli in the main when he was hunting him down. 
And uh, probably ultimately, if he ever figures out how to master that section, uh, he might have gotten uh, his second win of the season back there in Texas. Uh, that's not what happened, and it caused problems for other people too. Jordan Smith went down in the main event. And uh, so seeing Sand again, you wondered if the same people were going to happen to struggle with it. Now, that's not the way it turned out. Some people that had problems last week did really well, and some people that excelled uh, did not put uh, in the short segment times there that you might expect. And I think the reason for the variation here is that with the exception of, of sand being the commonality between them, these sections were extremely different. If you recall last week in Houston, the sand section was in a turn. It was a steep turn and it had these rollers and it forced guys to make a turn standing up the whole time. You could not sit down and wait down the front tire. So you had to lean back and manage to navigate this thing by squeezing the bike and riding it out standing up. Some guys were able to figure it out, like Eli, who railed it around the outside line. Many other riders, like the number 23 on the HRC Honda, were not. Uh, but, you know, guys like Chase were able to excel here because this was a straight sand section, and it was extremely long. And it, it was difficult, you know. These guys came into this thing with a, an excessive amount of momentum. They came out of a turn that allowed them to generate speed prior to that. And uh, there were a couple rollers early, and uh, some guys were able to double-double. Some guys were single-tripling. It really depended on how much early momentum you were able to carry off that first sand jump. And whether you were able to make it over the double or not, or whatever line combination you chose was, was hugely impactful because if you did not make the jump that you intended, or if you, you went short thinking you couldn't make a jump and ended up getting bogged down because you slowed momentum, this sand section continued to get deeper and deeper the longer you got into it. And by the time you got into the corner, even guys who had come into this thing with a really good run, top factory guys, were just twisting the throttle full speed and were very barely able to uh, get any drive at all, nearly coming to a standstill, and especially if they weren't able to keep that weight on that back tire. I mean, these guys were hanging all the way off the back of the bike just to keep that front tire from dipping and getting bogged down in the sand. But ultimately, heading into the night show or after having seen the outcome, I think we got to say that while this section challenged everybody equally, it was not a separator like the sand section in Houston might have been last week. Everybody managed to fare pretty well with it and pretty well considering the final track factor we'll consider, which was the weather conditions. They'd been talking about rain all week. And uh, when they turned on the, the qualifying broadcast, it seemed like they'd, they'd kind of been full of it. You know, you're down there in the bay. You know, it's supposed to be sunny and breezy, and you turn it on, and it looks fine. And they hadn't gotten any moisture, uh, I believe, when it came to qualifying, and the rain didn't come down the entire morning. And even if it did, it wasn't nothing more than a sprinkle, right? Just uh, a little bit to start the day. 
And, and so, guys, we're uh, hoping that would hold on into the night session, but the weather reports and the brilliant meteorologists were saying that it was going to happen. You know, everybody in attendance showed up in a poncho, or at least those that were smart enough to continue the weather report. And uh, boy, did they need it, because uh, about the same time the first heat race started, the rain started coming down. And by the second 250 heat race, it was absolutely pouring and would continue to do th so throughout the rest of the night, which I, I think significantly changed the outcome of, of who ended up winning. Was it a mutter? No, but it did make the track slick. This dirt was not absorbing the moisture well. If you look at turns like you had before the finishing jump, the water was just piling up there were puddles and you could see it spinning off the guy's back tire when they twisted the throttle there wasn't even dirt kicking off it was just uh like they were driving through a lake or something you know it was absolutely crazy and uh the guys that were able to manage that technicality uh ended up winning and maybe not guys that would have been able to do that uh, if it was a faster track, you know, this was only a 50-51 second lap time type track. We're in a football stadium. And I think if the traction had held up and it had been an, an issue of all-out speed, uh, maybe guys like Eli Tomac, and especially Eli Tomac, would have had a better performance. The race went from who can handle this track best to who can cope with how the track has changed. And uh, with the bike already set up from the morning session for uh, a dry situation, the winner was going to end up being the guy who was able to ride fast despite being on a bike that was not set up ideally. But before we can go forward and talk about how the weather conditions affected uh, the final outcome on the night, we got to talk about how things were going in the morning when conditions were still somewhat sunny. With 250 qualifying, I think things went pretty much the way you'd expect given the performances that we saw from particular individuals last week in Houston. Hunter Lawrence looked fast, of course, right? He looked the fastest and he was, he gets the win. Max Anthony looked quick, maybe quicker than you would have expected if you'd uh, been fooled by his 450 career and expected a continuation of that. And then you got Jordan Smith, who was uh, arguably the only guy out there as fast as Hunter Lawrence, uh, except for his little problem with crashing, which did prove to be a detriment. You also had Nate Thrasher, and uh, boy, would he be the center of attention throughout the course of the evening. And uh, he looked really fast. Everybody was saying he was going to look fast coming into this season. And uh, I hadn't really seen it on display to the, degree, to the degree that other people were seeing. I knew he was fast at moments. I knew he was always great in Daytona, but he didn't seem to be able to generate that speed consistently. Well, if the uh, early season in 2023 is to be any indication when it comes to Nate Thrasher, uh, he's figured out how to do it routinely, or at least he did the first week. And uh, as we saw in Tampa, he was planning on continuing that trend and, and improved his performance significantly. I think he went 14th overall in Houston or something like that. He had 
two separate crashes in the main event. And so coming into this thing, he was definitely looking for redemption. Now, because these guys were all in the top five with qualifying, we don't have to talk about it all that much. But some interesting things did happen. For example, in the second qualifying session, you know, these guys are doing a, a hot start to get prepared for the main. And Hunter Lawrence does not get a good drive by any means. He gets pinched off, even though he was in a good gate, and he ends up running into his teammate. That turn was pretty slick, and uh, it was a long start. It was the exact antithesis of the uh, short start last week. And, and guys were getting on the brakes too late, losing traction and, and sliding into the people in front of them. It collected Hunter Lawrence, and I don't even think he puts up a lap time in that second session, which ultimately turned out not to matter all that much because in the combined qualifying, his time from the first session of a 49.7 still allowed him to best the rest of the field and Jordan Smith in second by three hundredths of a second. Other notable events that we should discuss, Hayden Deegan goes down pretty hard in one of the qualifying sessions. He'd uh, gone wide of the track uh, to avoid the whoops. He jumps back on, and uh, in that double before the big stadium triple, uh, something went wrong. He goes sideways, goes flying off the triple, lands hard, somersaults, manages to catch himself like Spider-Man uh, on the cement. You know, he traveled that far. And not only does he emerge unscathed, but he also emerges undeterred enough to go and do what he does in his fucking heat race. But before we could go and talk about all that craziness, we got to talk about 250 heat one. Now we already talked about the weather conditions, so we won't beat that to death again. Let's just talk about who we got on the line with this thing right away. Well, you got uh, both uh, factory Yamaha boys, the star racing team. You got Nate Thrasher and Jordan Smith. Now for Red Bull Factory KTM, you got Tom Vial, the Frenchman. And uh, you've got uh, Michael Moseman on the gas gas machine. I just keep bringing him up because just a little part of me feels like I'll feel stupid if I didn't, if he does figure it out eventually. Well, it was the Yamaha boys that were fastest in practice. I don't know if I like calling them that. Uh, and it's Nate Thrasher that comes out and wins this thing. He pretty much got it uh, gate to checker. No one was ever going to contest it. And he ends up winning by seven seconds. And uh, it's not all that surprising, right? He was the only guy that could hang with Hunter Lawrence uh, in the heat race in Houston. And when you look at the lap times, there was hardly anyone contesting him in this heat race in Tampa. The only person that was able to best him, or even approach him for that matter, was Jordan Smith. And obviously, you know, with that speed, he could have been in contention to win this heat race, except for the fact that he goes down on the very first lap. Right after the stadium triple, there's that 90-degree right that goes into that uh, brief little rhythm tabletop section. And uh, he comes out fast, and he just loses traction, adding, asking a little too much of the bike 
uh, in the modified conditions, in the rainy situation. And uh, he got up quickly, you know, he gets up in 12th and ends up charging back up towards the front, you know, and he does end up catching Tom Vial before the checkered flag. He does it uh, right before the last lap, and it took amazing speed to do that. And he was, in fact, the fastest rider on the track. He put in a few laps, sub 51, and uh, other riders were doing that, but Nate Thrasher was only able to do it once. He was really the only guy that was able to do it consistently. And what's more, you know, he did that uh, climbing through the pack from 11th to 2nd. You know, Nate Thrasher had a whole lot of uh, clean air. Uh, to just choose whatever line he wanted. And when it comes to Smith, you know, you don't want to be too hard on the guy because you know that he's struggling, but he gets a good jump on this one. He's running up front right away. And if you're running up front and you know that it's raining, I just think you got to be a little more cautious. It's not just that he went down, but that he went down really giving it throttle. He was going for the lead immediately. But if you don't know what the track's going to do, I mean, even if you have to lose a position, you've got the speed to get it back. You've got the speed to repass Vial and Anthony and everybody. So why not just take it easy and get it under control and uh, dial it back and let your natural speed do it for you without pushing it so hard? You know, it's just frustrating because he's, he's, he's finally healthy and he's clearly got a chance to challenge Hunter. And uh, he just seems to be making uh, decisions, uh, overriding the bike and pushing it a little too hard uh, that are actually preventing him from doing the exact thing that he's trying to accomplish. Now, a guy that does just put in a smooth, buttery ride, it seems, and uh, can do it on command, do it consistently, is Tom Vial. He ends up going third behind Jordan Smith and he was a couple seconds off the pace of both Yamaha riders. But then again, everybody else was uh, riding slower than Vial was. You know, he seems to be a veteran at 22, and I guess uh, two MXGP championships will do that to you. But uh, if he gets a good start, he's just going to ride that thing to the finish. He's got big picture in mind right away and that's exactly what he did and he he did it so quietly that uh, you barely got to see him on the television broadcast but uh, that doesn't mean that he wasn't out there doing it just as effectively now a guy that struggled to just put in a clean heat race and seems to have this struggle quite often that is michael moseman on the start, he hits Chris Bloss. It looked kind of similar to how Hunter Lawrence went down in qualifying, and, and you can excuse him for it because, uh, like we said, that uh, flat 180 turn after the long start, uh, the water was making it slippery, man. Uh, but he doesn't anticipate that, goes down, uh, gets up, and somehow manages to climb to P5 which is a, a, a good performance, you know. He showed that he had the speed. If he'd managed to get a good jump there, perhaps he could have been up there contending or at least uh, running in third behind uh, the two factory Yamaha riders. 
he definitely had the speed dialed in compared to where it was a week ago. And yet his luck his de or decision-making, whatever it is, just doesn't hold. And it only gets worse as the night goes on. We saw what happened to him in the, the main event, a la Hunter Lawrence, uh, which I'm sure we'll be talking about for a few minutes shortly. Uh, just to finish up this heat race here, there was a uh, pretty gnarly crash involving Colin Park. Uh, and the reason I bring this up is because he was in an altercation just last week, a minor one in qualifying. Uh, but since we're talking about Moseman and guys whose luck just doesn't seem to be on their side, maybe Colin Park is uh, a little bit cursed uh, as of recent. In Houston, of course, he came together midair over the finish jump uh, while whipping with uh, Cody Shock. And uh, Cody Shock nearly uh, took quite a ride from it, did take a ride, ends up uh, sitting on his back tire nearly, stretched out Superman style, gets whiskey throttle, and puts it right into the side of the tunnel jump. Apparently, the, the two teammates had a little bit of an... Uh, Ted a Ted after that, a little man-to-man uh, -man conversation and got over it. Uh, but that was quite an event. And, uh, you know, if Cody Shock had in fact died, I think Colin Park uh, would feel pretty bad about it. Well, maybe that was still on his mind this week, or at least on the mind of the Karma Gods, uh, coming over that dragon back uh, in that second little whoop section or just preceding it. Uh, he gets sandwiched between two riders. Hits one on the left, ends up floating into the lane of the guy on the right. And uh, he comes off his bike midair and uh, goes right into the face of uh, one of these uh, big fucking jumps. And, and he goes into it hard. And uh, as if that wasn't bad enough, this was on the first lap and Smith had just crashed. And he had it penned trying to get back to the front of the pack or, or beat the guys he was racing to the next corner. And he nearly landed uh, right on top of Colin Park, which while I'm sure it would have been spectacular, I'm glad we did not get to see. The last guy we'll talk about here before we get into the second heat is one Michael Hicks. This guy takes fourth, and uh, I'll tell you, I don't know a, a whole lot about him. I, I pretty much just focus on the Supercross and Motocross. I don't really watch Arena Cross or, or Amateurs or MXGP or anything. Well, this is an arena cross guy. Apparently, he's a two-time arena cross champion. Uh, he came out and raced five races at SX East last year. Um, and his highest main was a 14th. So to go fourth in this heat race uh, is pretty sweet for him. Uh, they didn't show him a lot. He just tucked in uh, behind all of the action that was happening between the Yamaha boys and the KTM of Tom Vial. But it was cool to see him get it done here. And it was quite disappointing to see that he ended up taking dead last in the main. I was kind of cheering for him. I don't know what happened to him. I don't know if it was bike problems. I don't know if he, he crashed or if he just really ran that much slower than everybody. He was a, a lap down and, and, and then some, you know, really trailing by a lot. Even so, fourth overall in the heat, no meager accomplishment, and we'll hope for him to do better in the main next week. With that, let's go ahead and move on and get into 250 Heat 2. Now, in this, you've got the projected favorite, Hunter Lawrence. You've got the Brit Max Anthony, 
You've got the two rookies, Hayden Deegan and Chance Hymas. And you've got Jeremy Martin, who you pretty much expect to do pretty good. And who went out there and did just that, taking a quiet third. So we probably won't have to talk too much more about him in this heat race discussion. What we do have to talk about right away is the projected champ. Hunter Lawrence comes out and just like the start he has in qualifying practice, he gets a bad jump out of the gate. He's, you know, about uh, seven gates out from the far inside, something like that. And uh, he comes into the first turn behind a lot of guys, really on the gas, loses traction, goes into the guy in front of him, and he goes down. And he ends up getting up nearly dead last. And through this race, he would end up looking like a man possessed. He ends up climbing to fourth place and only finishing five seconds off Hayden Deegan. And he had to come back from a long way to do it. Lap seven, the eight laps in this race, he put in a 50-second flat lap time, which would be the fastest lap period from either 250 heat race. And he was speeding up through the race, even with traffic in front of him. His last three laps were under 51 seconds, and Hayden Deegan's very best lap was a 51.2, and he didn't exactly look slow putting that down. So you had to think if Hunter Lawrence could generate this speed and ride how he was, you know, to pass guys through the sand section, he was taking both lines. He'd go around on the outside, cut inside, vice versa, utilizing every inch of the track and in the most difficult segments. Um, Going to be scary if he can do that in these conditions come main time. Either way, with his hiccup early, it gave another young man a chance to shine, a man much younger, and of course that's 17-year-old Hayden Deegan. And uh, if he looked a little squirrely last week and looked like he was uh, struggling just uh, maybe the slightest bit to ride to his full potential given the pressure, he certainly didn't look like that in this particular heat race. He comes out and he gets the whole shot from the inside and he just takes off. No one's ever able to push him any more than they were able to push his teammate, Nate Thrasher. And uh, he still looked a little loose by style. He's hanging off that bike a little bit. But uh, while last week he looked like he was on the edge of crashing, he looked really smooth here. And I think what I was uh, thinking to be maybe him a little out of control was in some instances is just the way he rides the bike. He's got a unique way of doing it and uh, he really lets it rip, you know, and uh, if he can do that and stay in control like he did here, uh, I don't think it's going to be seasons for him to develop. I think he's going to come out and uh, find a way to start challenging in mains by the end of of the season by the 250 West East showdown, you know, and, and he was doing well on every section of the track. He was uh, taking a unique approach through the sand section here, and he was just wheeling through it, you know, while everybody else was hanging themselves all the way off 
the back of the bike to take the weight off that front tire. This kid's so fucking strong that he just kind of stood straight up and used raw muscle to hold that wheel off the ground and just sort of uh, rode the thing like uh, some $60,000 unicycle through the entire sand section. Now, he still does have to find a way to make that translate to the main. And I know I just said we'll see him contending, and I do believe that we will. But uh, it is going to take a, a couple more weeks, I, I, I think, for that to culminate. Uh, but then again, I didn't have him pegged to come out and win a heat race already. And if you want to disprove my claims even farther or uh, put some evidence up to the contrary, uh, he was absolutely consistent. You know, there was a slight bobble in the whoops, but uh, Premier 450 riders bobbled in the same exact spot in that main event. And if you look at the lap times, this guy was so consistent throughout. He ran six mid-51s in a row, all within about a half second of each other. And uh, that just shows that uh, he's got his uh, consistency down to a, a robotic level. You'd think trying to figure out the track and uh, the track conditions were worse for heat two than they were for heat one. Uh, you'd think you'd have to speed up through the race as you got familiar uh, with the new conditions. But he doesn't have to do that. He just comes out and rides this track like it's in his backyard and like he rides it every day. And uh, it was just a performance that uh, had the crowd going insane. And I think uh, overwhelmed or outdid the expectations of everybody. And uh, for a lot of those everybody's, the expectations have been extremely high for a while now. Uh, another guy who's talked about a little less, another rookie who's a little less active on social media, Chance Hymas, he gets a great start too. And uh, I think that's just kind of a thing he does good. I don't think that's a fluke by any means. He got two great starts in Houston, does it here. Uh, but what was different than his previous performances was uh, after getting that good start, he's always dropped through the pack as the race carries out. Well, not so. In this heat race, he runs third and then he gets Max Anthony who, uh, a veteran 450 rider. So for this guy to get by him, you know, Anthony knows how to block. He knows how to ride the track wide bike if he chose to. And yet Hymas, he just kind of had to let him go because Hymas had pure speed. And uh, if you thought it was crazy to see Hayden Deegan winning already, to see both rookies run one-two against a, a few guys that are absolute veterans uh, in this category, was uh, absolutely mind-blowing. And I don't think you can look to Hunter Lawrence's faux pas and attribute that as the reason uh, that these rookies were able to win or to go one and two at least or to get the win when it comes to Hayden Deegan. You know, getting the start is part of it. And both these rookies got a great jump when Lawrence had clearly been struggling with it all day and you know the HRC Honda's a good bike, so it's not as if they just got him on, on horsepower. Uh, they mastered the technique, and they managed to do it in a high-pressure situation. And uh, it had us wondering if uh, one of these youngsters was going to find a way to get onto the box 
going into the 250 mate. Spoiler, neither one of them does, but Hayden Deegan comes awfully close, which we are going to talk about uh, when we're done discussing the main action of the 250 main, which I think we ought to go ahead and jump into right now, by the way. Now, Hunter Lawrence, not the best start in Heat 1, in fact, absolutely awful, goes down. So what's going to happen in Heat 2? Is he going to iron it out like you'd expect from a champion? Not exactly. Not in this case. He starts about 12th coming around the first turn. Once again, he just gets beat out of the gate, gets pinched off by Jeremy Martin, and then to compound his troubles, he nearly runs into Jer Jordan Smith right after that, is able to save it, but has a, a whole lot of wood to chop uh, going into this thing when you'd expect him to uh, do something like he did in Houston and uh, get up front, if not right away, then certainly towards the initial stages of the race. Once again, capitalizing on Hunter's imperfections are pretty much everybody that's riding a star Yamaha in this division. Nate Thrasher goes way wide into the first turn, while Hayden Deegan, starting on the inside, goes really tight. Looked like Deegan was going to pull it out for a second, but for Nate Thrasher, speed wins out. He gets the whole shot, uh, but after that first rhythm section, it's Jordan Smith who ends up in an early second. And this is exactly what he needed. He needed redemption, and he needed a good jump. He was a little too hasty. In the heat race, as we discussed, but uh, you know he's 26. He's a veteran, despite uh, how long he's been out. He has experience, so you assume he's going to come out on the second go and be a little more cautious with this, right? Well, of course not. That's not what happens at all. He goes down in the first lap in the sand section, and I mean, he was really on rails up to this point. He had the fucking speed, but you know, they're uh, flattening this sand section out, getting all the uh, developed lines pressed out of it uh, before the main event. And so unlike a regular section where it would be a lot easier before it had been all uh, carved, grooved, and rutted up, in the sand, the first lap's just as hard, if not harder, because before any lines have been carved into the sand, and especially in that 180 turn at the end, your bike has absolutely nothing holding it upright if you decide to lean that thing over. Well, Jordan Smith learned that the hard way. He goes flying over the double into the uh, outside turn of that sand section, opted for the wide line, tucks it, buries the front end, washes out, falls over, he's fine, but an absolute disaster for his night. You know, he, uh, at one point during the race, he had uh, regathered himself up to P6, and honestly, I can't say what happened to him definitively. I've looked into it, and uh, he wasn't featured on the broadcast at all, but he ended up dropping back down to 15th on, on the lap times in lap 9. He put down a, a 57 and change, so I assume he might have gone down again. Uh, and then on the last lap, it says that he's out on the scoreboard uh, just a half lap before the finish. 
And on the official standings, he ends up going 15th on the scoreboard. And so I have no idea what happened with his evening after that initial crash. I wish I had something uh, better to say because I'm absolutely curious about this story. What I do know definitively is that this is absolutely devastating for his points championship. You know, he managed to salvage in Houston a bit despite going down, and it looked like he was going to salvage here, but he comes out of this thing 23 points down from Hunter Lawrence already in just the first two races, and it doesn't look like the uh, fellow from Australia is intent on slowing down at all and making Jordan Smith's job any easier. And uh, what kind of sucked too in this situation is that Tom Vial got a great start. You know, clearly this is a skill that translates uh, pretty directly from motocross to supercross because uh, he's had absolutely no problems adjusting uh, to the XX series when it comes to getting out of the gate. And so he's running right behind Jordan Smith when he goes down and it, it collects Tom Vial too. And so all of a sudden he's doing uh, damage control in terms of the points, you know, went seventh last week in Houston after running third all race. And in this instance in Tampa, he ends up climbing back to sixth place, which was an absolutely great recovery. And uh, he looked good all night. Uh, not running as fast as the top few guys, uh, but also running awfully consistent for a guy who's not familiar uh, with any of the obstacles that are uh, presented to him in American Supercross. And there was nothing he could do about this one. It was just an unfortunate racing accident. And uh, it's a shame. He probably deserved better, but at least he did a good job uh, to try to hang in there four points contention. But while all this commotion is going on back there, uh, Thrasher starts to check out. By the end of the second lap, Max Anthony is already four seconds behind him. Uh, the man they call Danger Boy is right behind Max. And uh, you got Moseman there trailing the 238. Finally, this guy gets a decent jump and he looks like he's got the speed to hold on to it and uh, would hold on to it if not for a little bit of misfortune that we're going to talk about uh, here in just a moment. And in fact, we'll go ahead and talk about it right now after we just take a moment to mention that at this point, the number 96 of Hunter Lawrence has climbed up to sixth place and is already six seconds down to Nate Thrasher, despite advancing through the pack that far. Well, Hunter Lawrence ends up disposing of uh, Jeremy Martin pretty fast, and so he comes up to Moseman sitting in fourth, while Moseman is coming up on Hayden Deegan and closing the gap between them. Well, about the time Hunter's really approaching anywhere in the proximity of Moseman's rear tire, Hayden Deegan buries the front end in the same exact place that his teammate Jordan Smith did on the opening lap. He uh, tries to double in and he, and he doesn't make it and loses all his momentum over those last couple rollers. 
Fortunately, he doesn't go down, uh, but it forces Moseman to adjust. Moseman had also opted for the outside line, and to avoid a repeat of uh, Tom Vial's misfortune, Moseman uh, has to uh, slow down a bit, and he does lose some time there, which allows Hunter Lawrence, who chose to take the inside line, to pull up right beside him. Well, this is bad news for Hunter Lawrence because even though he's technically closed the place by a couple of wheel links, he's got Michael Moseman on the inside going in to this blocking turn. And he knows, he knows he's going to get pushed high on the berm. So what Hunter Lawrence does is he tries to cut extremely low and uh, dart down underneath Moseman. Unfortunately for Lawrence, going that low on the berm, he's not able to get the bike turned around the way that he wants to. And so instead of just letting Moseman go, he decides he's got to get in front of him. And he tries to cut pretty much straight across the track, just pops the clutch a little bit. And he does get in Moseman's way. But Moseman wasn't letting off the throttle. And Hunter Lawrence knew that. Uh, and so he had to let up, and he ends up having to chase down Moseman again. And in fact, he recedes a position to Hayden Deegan as well, who he has to recollect before he can go back after the factory gas gas rider. And you can understand why Hunter Lawrence felt the need to be so aggressive. You got to look at how much time he really wasted being stuck behind Moseman. He was behind this guy for nearly five laps of the main event. And, uh, you know, he spent minutes, you know, eating this guy's roost. And he was faster than him, much faster than him in the long whoops section. Hunter Lawrence to me looked better than anybody in the 250s and as good as anybody in the 450s, probably throughout the night in that section. And uh, he was also very fast in the other whoop section, going up that dragon back and then dropping into the uh, few giant uh, doubles after that. He was, instead of hitting the top jump of the dragon back, he was actually jumping from the whoop down before that. And so he was tripling over into the doubles and would end up making huge amounts of time up here, especially chasing down Nate Thrasher. But the problem was, even though Hunter Lawrence was killing Moseman in these sections, when they got to the sand in order to maintain his vision and not just take the sand right to the goggles, he had to drop back a little bit and give Moseman some space. So Moseman would pull away and he'd have to track him down again through the whoops, close at the dragon back, repeat, etc. So he had to get it done now. But it was a move that was just imprudent. Once he realized he didn't have Moseman, he probably just should have let him go and then uh, lined him up a little bit later. And I just think it's interesting because uh, Jet Lawrence, you know, when he was in desperation mode in Anaheim 2, he also forced some passes that did not work out for him and ended up losing some time rather than gaining ultimately in the long run. So I don't know if this is a trait that uh, just the two of them share or if they'll begin to uh, develop a little more patience as they become even more professional and even more uh, rational in terms of uh, good decision making out there. 
but it was interesting to see, and, and to be fair, it was one of probably the only imperfect moment we saw from Hunter Lawrence aside from his starts on the evening. And that perfection would prove absolutely disastrous for Michael Moseman just minutes after that failed passing attempt, just a matter of laps. Hunter Lawrence in that section over the dragon back would take the inside line, would close the gap on Moseman. Moseman knew it was coming. He tried to go high in the turn before the sand section to avoid the aggressive pass. But he misses the high rut, washes the front end, is already off balance. Hunter Lawrence barely gets him with the back tire, and Moseman goes down. It was a clean pass, and perhaps even cleaner when you take into account the desperation that Hunter Lawrence was probably feeling under the circumstances. Either way, a disaster for Moseman, who ends up climbing back to seventh after the crash but absolutely was running fast enough to get a podium in Florida before this thing unloaded on him. Well, at this point, Hunter Lawrence is eight seconds down from the leader, Nate Thrasher. He's got Max Anthony in front of him, and Anthony's got six seconds between him and the leader as well. So it doesn't take Hunter Lawrence long to close on the Brit. And once he gets it done, there's six minutes left in the race. And the only question is, is he going to be able to reel in Nate Thrasher? And for the next few laps, it really doesn't look as if Hunter Lawrence is going to be able to get this thing done. He's chipping off tents here or there, but he's not really making an, a big impact to uh, hamper in any way the gap being put up by Nate Thrasher's solid performance. But around three laps left, there's just a sudden change. With three laps to go and two laps to go between the two of them, Hunter Lawrence cuts off about a second and a half from the deficit, goes into the last lap two and a half seconds down from Nate Thrasher, and it's really the first time both of them have been in the same screen all evening. Even so, it seemed like Nate Thrasher really had a big enough advantage, and even James Stewart uh, testified to the same thing uh, w while he was commentating on the broadcast. But in this last lap, a 52.7 is what Hunter Lawrence put up, while Nate Thrasher ended up putting up a 55.2. Now, obviously, Nate Thrasher got held up a lot in that final turn. But even so, the gap closed by Hunter Lawrence previous to those events was absolutely huge. Going over the dragon back, he crushes it again, hits the triple, perfectly skipping the top whoop entirely. And then he hits the sand section, the best that he'd hit it all evening, maybe the best that anybody had hit it all evening. Nate Thrasher takes the inside line, assuming that he's going to need to block Hunter Lawrence. Hunter Lawrence takes the wide line, absolutely rails the burn. Nate Thrasher has the awareness to see that this is happening, and so he floats wide and ends up T-boning Hunter Lawrence in an effort to cut him off. 
And in a sense, you can see why he made this move. He wants to remain in front. He doesn't want the 96 to get in front of him. But this split instant decision would end up being the single greatest factor that loses him the first place spot in Tampa. If he just let Hunter Lawrence have the jump, then Nate Thrasher certainly would have still been close enough to take Hunter Lawrence right off the track in that final turn. It was a great blocking turn. We saw people taking advantage of it throughout the evening. Nate Thrasher opted not to do that, maybe didn't have the foresight or lack the patience, which is understandable given the situation. Even so, it allows Hunter Lawrence the opportunity to play the block pass game instead. And he executes it to absolute perfection. He cuts wide, which is really counterintuitive considering there's one turn left. Your brain's probably just screaming inside. You don't want to cede an inch of space. Yet he goes absolutely wide in the turn so that he can cut down super low and cut across the track and put his bike directly in front of Nate Thrasher. That's exactly what he does. Thrasher can't recover. Hunter Lawrence goes on to take it by just over uh, a hundredth of a second. And Nate Thrasher nearly closed the gap here. Neither of them were able to hit the feature after that turn, which is the double onto the tabletop, double off before the finish. So they both have to roll the single there. Nate Thrasher is able to seat bounce and triple the tabletop, clearing the last single. Hunter has to roll them off. And that nearly allows Nate Thrasher to recover. Unfortunately, it nearly doesn't really matter in this sport. And so the Australian starts uh, the season off by taking his second podium in two efforts. And uh, the race craft was absolutely phenomenal. You could say that Nate Thrasher played it wrong. But what's undeniable is that Hunter Lawrence absolutely played this thing right. And he showed that all night. We talked about it a little. He was utilizing every line on the track as he climbed through the pack in the heat race and to some extent in the main event. And I think honestly that prepared him to be uh, ready to take any line that he needed to get Nate Thrasher at the last instant. He'd had practice taking the outside line in the sand and then you know, cutting down in that turn, that's the same exact spot. He had the failed pass on Michael Moseman a few minutes beforehand. So he'd already tried the block pass there once, biffed it, figured out what he did wrong, and uh, figured out how to correct that mistake to make the pass on Nate Thrasher. And boy, what a disappointing turnout if you're the number 29 on the star Yamaha. I mean, of course, there's nothing wrong with a second place, and it does improve significantly on the result he got last week, you know, just getting on the podium and not crashing and showing that you can show up and be uh, top in qualifying and through the night two weeks in a row. But that race was really his to be had, you know. How often is Hunter Lawrence going to get a terrible start and then be held up by one rider uh, for five minutes 
towards the end of it. You know, he could have had to have battled Hunter outright starting a, a lot earlier in the night. And uh, he really just failed uh, to capitalize here. Those last couple laps, I, I don't know if it was pressure or just uh, deteriorated track conditions. I mean, it was starting to pour by the end of this thing. It had been coming down hard through most of it. Whatever the reason, it was, it was close, but, you know, just not quite enough. And we'll see if he can rebound and, and learn from that and if he still sees this as a positive outcome as it would be otherwise if you'd take it second place in any other circumstance. And we'll see how he builds off that uh, going into the next 250SX round of the 23 season. As for Lawrence, you know, it's, it's clear that this guy is really the real deal. And I think we all knew that before, but I think it's just a little hard in a sense to see him as a top guy in his own right, uh, even if you try, just because they hype his brother so much. The guy's putting off a big shadow. And to see Hunter climb through the pack proves that he's not just going to be the guy with the jump. He's going to be the guy like his brother is on the 250 West, climbing through the pack if that's what needs to be done to finally get his 250 championship. And I just don't see, barring injury or divine intervention, how anybody else is going to catch him going through the next seven rounds of this season. I think Jordan Smith is the only guy with the straight-out speed to do it, and he doesn't seem to be able to keep the bike up uh, for 20 minutes or or through the first lap uh, in, in a lot of cases. So he's too far down uh, to really catch up unless he, you know, starts winning out outright from this point. And, uh, you know, Max Anthony is good. He's running second in points, only eight points behind. Uh, but he's not going to beat Hunter outright. Uh, you know, I don't think that can be denied. Uh, just to wrap up here, let's talk about how uh, a couple other fellas finished in this thing. We haven't talked much about Hayden Deegan except to say that he got a great start. Well, he managed to hold on and maintain that, running third for a portion of the race until he was passed by Hunter Lawrence on his charge to the front. And uh, it's not as if he was just coasting around there when uh, he wasn't letting Lawrence get by him. You know, he manages to hold off Jeremy Martin who's an absolute contender, and Jeremy Martin was right on his tail until uh, just a couple laps to go. He realized finally that he couldn't get the kid and decided to uh, settle for the place right below him. And uh, I just think that really uh, speaks volumes to how well Hayden Deegan is handling all the pressure. People talk about the public pressure, but what about the pressure of uh, all the veterans that are in this 250 East class to put even more pressure on these rookies who are going through the ringer already. And Deegan didn't even flinch. He doesn't go down. He looks smooth. And it ends up putting the kid third place in the points championship. I don't know if it's something he expected. He would not admit that he expected it. He's very humble about everything. But other people might have expected it for him, and it looks like we're getting it. As I said before, I think he's going to be battling 
for that top spot at least once or twice by the end of the season if his ability to adapt to professional racing continues to improve at the speed that it has been. As for his uh, rookie counterpart, as I kind of consider him, since they started out at the same time, Chance Hymas does not get a great start for once. He doesn't get the start he got in Houston, which allowed him to uh, run up in second place for the first couple of laps. He starts about ninth, and he finishes eighth. But what I think is, is good about this, a positive takeaway, is that he didn't drop through the pack in that other heat race in Houston. Uh, he fell to eighth from second, you know, after things started to happen around him. Well, at least this week, no one was able to advance on him after they got to the last turn. And I, I still consider that a positive, even though he doesn't think, and many people may not think, uh, that this result was an improvement on the result he put up last week. He goes eighth there, he goes eighth here. You'd think that it would be the same, but uh, I think that he looked even better overall if you don't take the start into account. Did he improve as quickly as Deegan did? No, but these things don't exactly happen at the same speed for every person does not mean they're not going to happen at all. And he did come in second in the heat race and looked absolutely smooth as hell doing it. So I'd expect him to be a little bit fired up by this, feel like he's been around for a while now, whether that's true or not, going into the next race. And I would expect to see his best main event performance of the season. I'd even dare to uh, give him a sixth if he's feeling it. With that bold prediction, I think we can part ways with the 250s for now and go ahead and get into the uh, meat of the night and start talking about the 450 class. Starting with qualifying, Chase Sexton comes out and does what he always has a habit of doing lately. We talked about it last episode, and that's just absolutely annihilating the qualifying sessions he comes out in qualifying session one today, and of course he puts down the fastest time with a 48.7, and he would be the only rider to break the 49-second mark in the first session. And uh, in fact, San Diego is the only race so far where he hasn't qualified fastest overall. But while he undoubtedly looked the best, there were other riders that were showing up as well. Jason Anderson, who ends up going second overall, looked very fast in the first qualifying session, and he would have finished right behind the number 23 of Chase Sexton in the placing if it weren't for the fact that his teammate, Adam Sansarillo, was riding so fucking fast. He ends up going fourth overall in combined, but he was really throwing down heaters in that first session especially. And it seemed to be an early indication that uh, the successful rebuild of his career that he's been putting together was going to be continued in Tampa. As for Cooper Webb, he looks fast too, ends up coming in the top five overall. 
And uh, so does Eli Tomac, who looked good, improving on his lap times in the second session considerably. And uh, showing that uh, he was probably going to come out and do what he did last week in Houston. At this point in the night, he didn't seem to have the chink in his armor that we'd end up seeing later. As for the German, Kenny Roxon, he looks really bad in the first outing, goes 13th overall, ends up taking 7th on the night. So clearly they did something to the bike between Q1 and Q2 that did work in his favor. But uh, this was a scary sign and certainly not something I wanted to see early. Uh, because if you remember on the last podcast, we talked about Kenny Rocks and having bike problems in qualifying in Houston. He was uh, jumping through the whoops while absolutely everybody else was blitzing him at that point in the evening. And in fact, throughout the night, he was one of the only guys having to jump them. And, you know, we talked about how Tampa has this super long rhythm section. If Kenny comes into this and his team, the uh, Suzuki team, hasn't managed to sort out these problems, then uh, even without the rain and especially with it, it seemed like it could turn out to be a really awfully long night for him. In the end, however, going into the heat races with the morning session done, it looked like we might get a repeat uh, of the finishers that we got in Houston. We've got Sexton in one heat, we've got Anderson in the other, and they're looking like they're both fast enough to get the whole shot and run away with it. And of course, you know, if you've watched the race, that that's exactly what happens. Now, going into 450 Heat Race 1, I have to make the disclaimer that this was perhaps the least interesting race of the night. They were all good, but there's always one, especially on a night where uh, every race is packed with action. Uh, where one is just more cursory and lackluster uh, than the others appear to be. And uh, in Tampa, it appeared to be 450 Heat 1 for me. Like we just said, Anderson uh, gets a great jump, but he actually doesn't get the whole shot as predicted. It's his teammate, Adam Sansarillo, who we know is a wonderful starter. It wouldn't take long for Jason Anderson to get around him. He had more speed and Sansarillo just let him have it, which was a wise decision. And uh, Jason Anderson would end up putting down the fastest lap of that heat with a 50.7. Awfully impressive when you consider that that was their uh, first foray onto this track ever since the rain changed it. But what's got to be said is while Anderson had the speed, it's not as if he just dropped his teammate AC by any means. As you know, if you've been watching the season, AC gets a lot of great jumps and then drifts through the pack as the guys running faster navigate their way around him. But that's not exactly what happens this time. He only finishes down by three seconds and you got to believe that he could have pushed harder if it had been required of him. And so I thought this was uh, the best form throughout an entire race that Adam Sansarillo had displayed all season, uh, which makes it curious that he did end up going 12th 
overall in the main event, which sadly uh, is his best outing so far of the 23 seasons. So we'll go ahead and hope, since we probably won't talk about him in the main that much since he wasn't a contender, uh, that uh, he just struggled with the rain or it was just an off night for him and uh, he'll come back next week in Oakland and be ready to uh, continue the rebuild uh, that we just attributed to him and, and whose accolades we were praising when we were talking about qualifying. But Adam Sansarillo wasn't the only guy in this heat with a habit of getting a great start and then not being able to maintain that position who found a way to put an end to that trend in this first heat in Tampa. Christian Craig ends up going third place in this thing, starts third pretty much, and just manages to hold on to it. We know in main events so far this season, his best result has been an 11th, and not all of those starts were, were horrible, so it's not as if he was climbing through the pack to get to that position. Now, what I didn't know, and now I feel like an asshole because I've been really hard on this guy in previous episodes because after seeing his 250 dominance and skills on display, I, I really expected more from him in the big class. Uh, but apparently this guy took a, a giant crash, which somehow I missed, uh, and Anaheim won in one of the practice sessions. And apparently he's really been struggling to come back from that throughout the rest of the 23 season. Well, in whatever way that injury or a mental obstacle that may be associated with it was hampering him, uh, this guy found a way to get over it in the first race in Tampa. Uh, he looked absolutely excellent. Not only did he have an incredible finish, but uh, it's not as if he was riding around by himself and the two Kawasaki riders had pulled away from him. He stuck to Adam Sansarillo the whole time, who, as we just said, was having one of his best rides of the season. Somewhat sadly, I suppose, Christian Craig's uh, main event accomplishments in Tampa uh, would not match uh, his heat rate speed in the same way that Adam Sansarillo's did not. Uh, but while AC goes 12 and it's his worst of the season, Christian Craig goes 10th, which is technically his best outing so far in 23. He'd been uh, picking up a lot of uh, 11ths up to this point. So it is some marginal improvement. And uh, I do hope that uh, whatever he's dealing with, that was really the end of it. And he can come out now through the remainder of the season and uh, show us the speed we all know he has from 250s if he is healthy. And like I said, I, I do feel bad. So I'm not going to talk shit about him on successive podcasts, even if his performances uh, are, are dismal. So if you're one of his fans, don't feel like you have to go cancel me. Moving on, one last guy we'll talk about before we get to Heat 2, Justin Cooper. He goes seventh, uh, was a little less than I expected of him, considering that's the same place he got last week in Houston's main event. And he got a decent start, too. It, it, it wasn't abysmal, but uh, he ends up getting passed by uh, M Wilson and McElrath as the race goes on, Dean Wilson and Shane McElrath. 
and certainly those those are accomplished riders, but they're not quite factory riders. This guy's on the the Star Yamaha, which it seems maybe next to the uh, HRC Honda. It, it is the best damn bike in the business, and I thought he had the speed uh, to at least hold them off uh, for a few minutes of a heat. But ultimately, as the night went on, Justin Cooper made it clear that he wasn't going to let his mediocre heat performance affect his outcome in the main. He ends up going seventh, just like he did in the heat, and just like he did in the Houston main. So maybe seventh place is just exactly where he is, given his speed right now. And ultimately, given the treacherous conditions of Tampa on Saturday, I think this main event performance really has to be commended. Justin Cooper's not a huge guy. He had just recently moves up to the bigger bike. And a couple of these sections, the notable ones with the sand and, and the long whoops and the second whoop section, that requires a lot of strength to navigate. And he might still be getting used to throwing the 450 around in that way. And then you add in how slippery the track surface became and, and how careful you had to be about getting on the throttle in those flat turns and things. And I think the fact that uh, he was able to uh, rise to the situation uh, is something that uh, deserves a couple thumbs up from, from me and everybody. And uh, I got to say, I think this guy is good enough to be racing full time. You know, maybe Star Racing said they didn't have the money. Uh, they've got like 70,000 guys on the team. I think they could uh, maybe shed some weight if they needed to make room for a guy, uh, financial room for a guy with uh, Justin Cooper's resume. Let's move on now and get into the uh, more interesting heat race of the premier class, and that's 450 heat race two. In this thing, you've got Chase Sexton, Eli Tomac, Kenny Roxon, Cooper Webb, and this is the uh, kind of dense lineup that we've come to expect lately from the premier class of Supercross. You know, maybe we're a little spoiled in feeling that way, but we've gotten used to how packed this division is with talent. At least it was at the beginning of the season, you know, losing Mookie and losing the two Frenchmen in Muscan and Dylan Ferrandis really eliminated a lot of the excitement that we could have gotten, at least in the heat races. When you get to the main, there's still enough guys with skill that it's packed with talent. But uh, we are seeing a little sparsity, I think, or at least that's what I noticed with the uh, first heat this week. But this one was filled and it had the uh, two real contenders, I think, at least in most people's purview, or at least the two you would have had pegged at the beginning of the year, in Eli and Chase. And they both get great starts. At first, it looks like Eli has the jump. He is the first to the inside corner. But he isn't able to slow down enough, and he ends up having to go way wide outside into the turn, and Chase is able to keep the bike tight and uh, stay on that inside line cuts underneath Eli ends up coming out right in front and it looks like we're going to get another repeat of last week we're going to have the two juggernauts with no one in their way just simply able to compete but they never actually 
end up competing. Chase Sexton ends up taking off pretty much right away. And when all is said and done, he'll end up beating second place by nearly eight seconds and uh, putting up a time that's faster than Eli's by exactly 10 seconds flat. And, and Chase did that, of course, by putting down uh, the fastest lap times of the night for that heat, just like he did, does in every session, with a uh, 49.72. No one else was really able to touch that. But it's not as if Eli was riding at his best early on, once again, like we saw last week. And the best insight we got into the way he was struggling was when he got passed by Aaron Plessinger. Now we have to step aside here just a little and talk about how great AP's been looking lately. He looked fast in this one, got a great jump, only got beat by 23 and the number one. And uh, I said it last week on the podcast, I don't want to pat myself on the back too much, but I just had a feeling he was finally going to get his third place finish in a main event this season. We can talk about uh, whether that ended up happening later when we get to the main. But I'm, I'm hardly ever right when I spew out these position predictions. And, and to see this one come true and to see it come true for, for such a great guy was absolutely exhilarating. And uh, he looked absolutely fast in this heat race, you could tell immediately that he had the speed uh, to get the third that he was owed proceeding through the evening. You know, going second overall here, he puts in the fastest, uh, second fastest lap time of the night, and he was only a tenth of a second behind Chase Sexton in that category. So I guess when I said no one could touch Chase's uh, 49.72, there was one guy out there that could get pretty close, and that was the number seven. But uh, when you watched him pass Eli, it wasn't just because of AP's excellence. It was because of things that Eli Tomac was absolutely failing to accomplish. If you Think about the whoops section. There was this big triple with that huge middle, middle jump uh, preceding the giant whoops section. And you absolutely had to hit this triple clean if you wanted a good drive through all 14 of those whoops. In the main event, uh, the turn broke down, the jump broke down, and even the best guys, Cooper Webb, Chase Sexton, were struggling to hit this thing cleanly. They were casing it, and it was causing them problems in the whoops, which we will definitely talk about when we discuss the last laps of the main event. But at this point in the evening, no one was really struggling with it. None of the top riders, certainly. And yet, Eli Tomac cases it, and that's he comes up short, and that's how Aaron Plessinger ends up getting around him. Aaron Plessinger is able to hit it cleanly, Blitzes by him on the outside in the whoops because Eli just lost all his speed. And, and at that point, the cowboy never looks back. Uh, but that wasn't just a, a lack of comfort. It was a lack of comfort for Eli Tomac leading to a very uncharacteristic mistake. 
And uh, even Ricky Carmichael on the broadcast uh, was making allusions to the fact that uh, he hadn't really seen Eli Tomac look this bad all season. Of course, he ends up finishing third right behind AP, which isn't a terrible outing. But at the same time, I feel like if he doesn't get that great start that he did, he probably finishes the race a whole lot closer to whatever position he is in coming around that first turn. I don't think he was in any position to climb through the pack uh, in this heat race like he is known to do when he feels more comfortable in the conditions. Even so, going into the main, you feel like you can't put too much stock into this. This is an exact repeat of what we saw in the heat last week. Chase gets out there early, runs away with it. Eli looks like he hasn't got the pace, and then come uh, time for the spotlight to shine, Eli figures it out, puts it down, and Chase can't figure out how to retaliate. And in that race, Chase had to make the pass on Eli to get in the lead. This time, he just runs away with it. So you've got no reason initially to suspect that Eli Tomac isn't going to be able to repeat what he did in Houston going into the Tampa main. Now, the other couple big names in this race, we got to talk about Kenny Roxon. We talked about how he looked like he was struggling in qualifying. And uh, he gets a jump in fourth, ends up finishing just below that. And I thought he did look good on the majority of the track for the initial stages of the race. But then, with two laps left to go, Justin Barsha closes in on him. And uh, Kenny, going through the whoops, once again, he's jumping through them. Comes nearly to a standstill. Barsha blitzes by him. And this isn't to take anything away from JB. You know, the number 51 put in some fast laps in the middle of the race to catch up to Kenny Roxon and get by him. You know, a lot of 50-second lap times, a couple low 51s. But when it comes to Kenny Roxon, once again, he's struggling with the whoops. And once again, we see a manufacturer struggling to get Kenny comfortable enough uh, to even put in good enough times in the whoops that he could make up for that deficit anywhere else on the track. And so you got to think the end of this heat race, at least in that section, probably not a good sign for Kenny. Manages to salvage it through the shorter race, of course. Uh, But given 20 minutes and uh, how bad the track will break down, is he going to be able to navigate that on equipment that isn't set up to his liking? Certainly that's the question moving forward. As for Cooper Webb, uh, I think he's feeling a lot better on his bike. So uh, the struggles he had in this heat race probably didn't have anything to do with suspension. The guy just gets a bad start here, not even in the top 10 coming around the first corner, not even in the top 10 the first few laps, riding around 13th. 
ends up uh, going P6. So a, a great job to recuperate and salvage and uh, exactly what you'd expect from a two-time champion. Uh, but he is 27 seconds down from the leader at the checkered flag. And uh, the problem with this, uh, Tampa's start with that treacherous, slippery first turn, not very forgiving if you don't get a great gate pick. You know, even if you send it too hard into the turn and can't get the uh, tires to stick, can't get any traction, you can do what Eli did and go wide if there's not anybody in front of you. Sure, you sacrifice half a second, a second, uh, but at least you're not running into anybody. If you're buried mid-pack and then you got to slam on the brakes and they don't stick, you're running right into the rider in front of you, just like Hunter Lawrence did. And then just like he did, you're picking yourself up and uh, trying to climb through the pack in an absolute nightmare situation. Clearly, if you know how the main turned out, then you know that Cooper Webb managed to deal with his mediocre gate pick in a way that was absolutely magnificent. And, and since we're on the subject, why don't we go ahead and just get into the 450 main right now. Let's talk that big main event. I think the first thing that has to be mentioned here is that if Eli Tomac, our points leader, can go ahead and take the win in this main event, that will be number 48 for him, which is, of course, significant not only because it's a gigantic fucking number, but because it also happens to be Ricky Carmichael's record. And uh, while Eli says that he's not really concerned with uh, matching that title or that it would lend him any sense of personal accomplishment anywhere on par with winning a Supercross championship, being the third best of all time just sounds a lot better than being fourth best, doesn't it? I, I think there's a reason we only give out three medals. What, uh, what medal would a fourth place medal be made out of? Uh, aluminum or something like that? And so you got to think that there was perhaps a little extra pressure on him to come out here and perform to the top of his abilities. Well, we know that doesn't exactly happen, and we'll, we'll talk about it in just a second. But uh, it was an exciting moment of, of what could have been, and it, it gives us the opportunity of knowing that he has uh, another chance to uh, give us fans the excitement of seeing him tie RC's record in Oakland. In this race, however, it's a, another two-time indoor champion who goes and gets the whole shot. It's the uh, Red Bull Factory KTM rider of Cooper Webb. And we haven't seen a lot of that recently. I can't remember the last time uh, this guy got the jump in a main event. He's not able to hold on to it. As soon as they uh, cross the white paint, it's Chase Sexton who quickly moves into the lead. And uh, he was excellent on starts all day. He gets this one, the same one he managed to uh, beat Eli Tomac in the heat race. And that's uh, while other guys were struggling to stay tight in this turn and were drifting wide, he took that far inside line and stayed pretty much on the tough blocks the whole time and was still able to get drive even with the slippery terrain, 
which allowed him to just catapult himself into that uh, first set of uh, three rollers that they were uh, wheel tapping with uh, a lot more speed than anybody else. And that's how he got the early lead. Now, already in the first lap, we get our fair share of commotion, not concerning Chase Sexton and Cooper Webb, at least at this point in the race, but with our man, the number 21 of El Hombre. He took a quiet third last week in Houston, did even better than that the week before, taking a second in Anaheim too, and certainly displayed the speed and alacrity at mastering the terrain throughout the heat race that uh, would have been necessary and could have allowed him to have great results in the main event. And not only that, but the guy gets off to a decent start to boot. Not the best start, running around sixth. But uh, the problem happens early on, and it happens in the sand section. The crash he gets in with Justin Barsha, of course, happens in the final turn of the course, which is just after the sand section. But what happens, and it was barely on camera, uh, he's tripling those rollers early on in the sand, like a lot of people are, uh, he lands really off balance, didn't land in the rut he wanted to, ends up going wide. He's headed for the side of the track, uh, doesn't want to let off the gas and lose momentum, so he decides to pen it, but he'd landed outside of the uh, innermost rut. And so he just ends up in loose sand, loses a lot of time. I don't think he crashed. But uh, it immediately put him into a mental space that consisted of desperation. And that's why when he comes into that final turn right behind Justin Barsha, he feels the need to cut the guy off and cut low and take the place immediately. And of course, the problem is he doesn't execute the move right. Right, I don't think he was going in there to muck out Justin Barsha on purpose. He was trying to cut lower than he did, wasn't able to get that front wheel turned around, and ended up getting tied up with the number 51 instead. But uh, of course that thing's going to happen if you send it into a uh, turn like that. And uh, it was early enough in the race that with the pace he was running, he still would have had an opportunity to advance through the pack and thus had a point to uh, an opportunity to salvage his place in the 2023 point standings. He chooses to make a different decision, gets tied up with Barsha, of course, ends up getting up dead last. And uh, it's remarkable that he got P6 on the night. If you were going to give uh, an award to anybody for being able to climb through the pack in dead last, I think El Hombre would get it because not only is he the best at it, but he's the guy uh, with some of the most practice. But, uh, you know, still finishes 35 seconds down, which is just not something that can be happening uh, as this championship continues. Luckily for him, he almost caught Eli Tomac, so he doesn't lose out by much in the point standings. He's 20 points down now from Eli, and the situation wasn't much worse coming in 
to Tampa. But, you know, I'm on record as a Jason Anderson fan and as of being of the opinion that uh, his 2018 championship wasn't a fluke and that uh, based on pure speed alone and talent on a bike, he does deserve to have a second championship title to add to that collection. But the longer this goes on without him regaining any of his former success or regaining all of it, and the more he just continues to throw seasons away early on by making not just mistakes, but making uh, sort of impulsive, non-veteran decisions, well, you're never going to question if he can win a race, but you've got to wonder if he's got it together enough mentally to get through 17 rounds with enough consistency that it nets him the title ultimately. I just don't think uh, decisions like that pass on Barsha or, or other things that he's forced are ever going to allow him to see great results as long as they're part of his regiment. Getting back to the race as a whole here, not a lot of movement occurs in the top five positions as they'd run ultimately after we get through the first five minutes. Around then is when Kenny Roxon and Eli Tomac end up getting around AC. And of course, they'd finish fourth and fifth behind the third place of no other man than the number seven, Aaron Plessinger. We already talked about in the heat race how great he ran today. And uh, he gets the third place. He deserved it. He had it coming. Uh, it's been too long since he's been up there. And it was great to see him just get a good jump and ride this thing straight to the finish. The only two guys that were able to beat him were pushing each other at considerable speed. And yet when everything was said and done, AP only crossed the finish line 13 seconds behind the leader. And yet 18 seconds ahead of the man running the number one plate. An absolute excellent performance would be surprised, in fact, if we did not see it repeated next week. Now, as for the other guy we just mentioned, Eli Tomac, running the number one, we're not going to say that he had a bad ride today. I have this bad habit of setting such a high standard for champions of his caliber that uh, when they perform at a level anything less than their best, I seem to interpret them and seem to interpret it as them having a bad day. That's not what I want to do here today. He ends up going fifth here and his worst performance of the season is a sixth place in Anaheim 2, and we saw that he had a giant crash in one of those main events. So the fact that he's still able to perform in a top five position, even when he's truly legitimately struggling, is something that needs to be seen as a, a testament to his motorcycle ability. But I think what we do have to take out of today, and especially with the performances put down by Chase Sexton to some extent, but Cooper Webb especially, 
it shows us that while Eli Tomac is still a top contender, he's not necessarily untouchable. After the first few rounds, it looked like the only person you were going to have to worry about if you're going to win the championship was him. And not because the field wasn't deep, but because he was the final boss on the final level, because he was the best one doing it. And as the season goes on, and we've seen him have a couple weeks uh, slightly short of perfection, you see that while he might be the, the front runner, while he's certainly got as good of a chance as anyone else, there are other individuals that have a legitimate shot of coming up and taking this thing away from him. The two guys that could, in my opinion, who everyone had at the beginning of the season, Chase Sexton, but now the other guy, we're seeing the number two of Cooper Webb. And now I think we ought to discuss these guys a little bit farther as we talk about what was undoubtedly in the 450 class, the most fascinating battle of the evening. The first thing that has to be noted is that even though Chase Sexton gets around Coop in the first turn, he's never able to pull away from the number two to any significant degree. For the first few minutes of the race, Cooper Webb is never any more than two seconds behind the number 23. And as the race goes on, he closes that gap and manages to run right on Chase Sexton's rear tire for the majority of the race. And they showed it the whole time. And the whole while I'm sitting there wondering what's going on in Chase Sexton's mind when he realizes that he can't drop the fellow behind him on the KTM. We know that Cooper Webb gets faster as the race goes on. Everybody talks about it. Much ado has been made of it this season. And these guys know the uh, habits and quirks of the other guys they're racing against. So they know if Coop is anywhere close to you in the last five minutes, he's going to cause a real problem for you on the last couple laps. And we also know that Cooper Webb has the confidence to wait to do it. He also knows that he's great at the end of the race. And so he doesn't feel like he needs to force a pass early if he knows that he has the speed. He can mail it in and ride right behind you and figure out what lines you're taking and make you do all the hard work in figuring out how to adjust to the track. Uh, steal your methods, and then when the time's right, use those against you and make the pass. And that's exactly what Webb sat around trying to do here through most of the race. Now, granted, that's not to say that I think Webb could have made the pass at any time. They were running similar paces, and it's not as if he was just waiting, sitting there bored, and trying to conserve his energy. If he could have gotten Chase sooner, he would have forced the issue. But Sexton was not running slow by any means. And Webb clearly made the decision that he was going to have to wait for Sexton to wear down and get this thing late. And you know with Chase Sexton, the exact thing that happened, there's always a possibility of that happening. This guy struggles late in races. And the times he struggles aren't always things that are, are easy to predict. 
He can be under pressure and stand up to it like he did here, having Cooper Webb on his tail for the majority of the event. And then Cooper Webb makes a bobble late. Chase Sexton finally gets some breathing room with two minutes left. All he's got to do is mail it in. And that's when the error comes. And so you never know when it comes to this guy, when and if the other shoe's going to drop. But since there's always that possibility, clearly Cooper Webb was cognizant of it. And he knew that if he administered pressure to Sexton, the chances of that crash happening went up. And that's why even after Coop went down in the whoops, he got back up or nearly went down. It was a miraculous save that he was able to keep this bike up as, as slippery as those whoops were by that point in the evening. But uh, another rider might have uh, dropped back a couple seconds and settled for second, but Coop ratcheted the pressure right up and immediately began to close the gap again despite his bumble. And I want to take a second and talk about that moment because you could absolutely see it coming. Now, the whoop section, there's that triple before it. And this is the same place Eli Tomac cased that allowed Aaron Plessinger to get around him. By the end of the main event, all these guys were struggling not to case this jump. And yet you lost so much time by double singling that everyone felt obligated to do it. When Cooper nearly goes down in the whoops, it's the third lap in a row that he cases the triple leading up to them. And that lack of drive was just leading him to uh, lose the front tire by the end of the section. There was no, not enough forward more momentum to keep that thing uh, from pivoting left and right pretty much of its own volition. And so it wasn't surprising when he finally went down, but the fact that he was willing to show that level of commitment and keep going for the triple, even though he knew that it might cause a problem for him in the whoops, I think shows two things. One, how badly he wants to prove that he's back in the run for championship contention. And two, the other thing we were just talking about, which was that if you pressure Chase Sexton when he's in the lead, there's a good chance that he's going to go down. I think the late push proves that Cooper Webb knew it and that it was an essential part of his strategy. But all that being said, I don't think we can really be too hard on Chase Sexton or that he has any right to be too hard on himself for the way that this race turned out. Not only did he salvage second place on the night, but if you look at the big picture, he really improved in the point standings. He's only two points down to Eli Tomac now, sitting in second place overall. And this is the closest he's been all year. And it means next week, it might mean only beating Eli Tomac by one position to go ahead and step up to the champ and steal that red plate away from him. So while he did undoubtedly throw away a win, he still comes away from Florida sitting pretty excellent. Of course, however, the same thing has to be said 
about the guy that beat him. Now Cooper Webb is only four points down from Eli Tomac in the standings. If he does in Oakland what he did in Tampa, he could easily be wearing the number one plate a couple of weeks from now. And even seeing how good he looked at the beginning of the season, I didn't see this turn of events ever going down. Maybe next year, maybe in 24, but I didn't see it happening in 23. And if it was going to happen in 23, I certainly didn't see it happening so early. The guy took two seconds in the first two weeks of the 23 season, then a fourth and a fifth, not quite what he wanted, but he rebounds strong here, taking the first place plate. And I think the reason it's more significant, even more so than it looks on the surface, is that uh, he's absolutely a guy that runs off momentum. Cooper Webb builds energy as he succeeds continually. Some guys are like that, and then there are guys like Eli Tomac, who it doesn't really matter to. I mean, forget about tonight, but uh, look at last week, and you see, you know, he's not always running great in qualifying, not always running great in the heat, And yet he can just turn it on when he needs it. He doesn't always need to feel like he's building on something to go out there and put down a good performance. Cooper Webb does. It's not easy for him to come out and have a uh, substandard morning afternoon and then suddenly flip the switch. He does better when he's doing good throughout the entire day And when he's been doing good in the prior weeks leading up to the event. And I think what vouches for that is that Cooper Webb has not been known as a great qualifier for most of his career. And he's been qualifying top five regularly, just like he did in the morning in Tampa. When he's feeling good, he's feeling good all the time. And the fact that he's looking better than he has all year when he already looked good coming out of race five, well, I think suddenly there's a new guy that has his eye on the championship. If Eli and Chase were just worried about each other to this point, I think there's a third member of the party that deserves an invitation. And I'm really excited to see the track in Oakland and see if it plays to Cooper Webb's strengths and see if he can come out and add some intrigue to this three-way battle we have going on, which as a fan, I really think deserves our utmost gratitude. When all that happens in California next week, we'll go ahead and get back on here and talk about it. Until then, I think I'm going to say farewell for now. I think this has been a pretty good episode, and it's time to go enjoy a few adult beverages. Uh, Until I talk to you sexy people again, I want you to stay safe out there, my friends. But even more than staying safe, I want you to go ahead and keep on being sexy, just like you've already been. Thanks a lot, guys, for tuning in. I'll see you on the other side of this.